All right, we are in a series through the, through the book of the Revelation, and um, we come to chapter 17 today. And chapter 17 is another one of those chapters that has a, a fantastical vision and terrible beasts, and it's hard for us to make sense of it. It's actually not difficult at all for the first century recipients of this book to make sense of it. There are some images here, some that we've already talked about, some that uh, we'll, we'll speak more clearly and specifically to this morning, but we're trying to bridge a 2,000-year historical gap that John and those churches that he is writing to, they don't have that same gap. And there's images here that they're used to, they're very accustomed to, that are used in a very powerful and graphic way. So some of the language, I'm actually kind of uh, glad that the, the, a lot of the kids are, are, are out of the room, just it's not, I'm not going to get graphic with it, but there are concepts here that maybe you wouldn't want to continue to um, explain to your children later on after we, after we finish today. So that's good. Thank the Lord for the timing of Kids Choir. Um, if you're, if you're visiting this morning, I'm looking around and there's, 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 there's a lot of folks here. And so if, if we haven't met yet, I'm Bob Carlson. It's my privilege to be the pastor here at Brush Prairie. And I'd love for you, take that, take that communication card that you received with the bulletin and um, fill that out or put some contact information on that that we could, we could follow up and get a chance to connect. And uh, I would look forward to doing that and maybe... Uh, filling in some gaps, telling you more about who we are as a church, and I could all, we could also find out how can we best serve you. So as we open our Bibles to the, to the book of the Revelation in chapter 17, I encourage you to, um, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, uh, grab the church Bible there in front of you, and uh, you'll find some notes on the back of the bulletin. I think we're on about page 1037 or 38, somewhere in there. If you're using the church Bible, if you're using your own Bible, I have no idea what page we're on. But go to the back and move inward a little bit until you find the book of Revelation in chapter 17. I've, I, I've entitled this chapter, The End of the World Religion. You could take that a couple different ways, couldn't you? Am I talking about the kind of religion that will be at the end of the world? Well, actually, yes, I will be. Am I talking about the, the uh, end of world religion as it has been? Yes, we're actually going to talk about the root and the fruit of world religions and how do you know, as I talked a little bit with the kids, how do you know what's the difference between biblical faith, is there a, a faith in the one true God that is actually uniquely different from all other religions that we've known through history? I think there's some essential differences, and I think the Bible is actually kind of clear in describing them. And that's one of the things I want to do this morning. We're, we're actually going to do that through a very, uh, well, easily confused chapter in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not necessarily your go-to place to, to find a clear statement of something anywhere, anyway, is it? And that's because of those images. But there's images here that I think once we talk about those images and connect those back to how our first century audience would have seen them, even how an Old Testament audience would have seen them, it's going to come together for us. So let's jump in and do that. I'll read the first six verses, and that should be a big enough bite for us to start with. Revelation chapter 17 from verse 1. 
Now, I should also say before we go that we have just finished in the last chapter talking about the final series of judgments ending with a cataclysmic judgment of 100-pound hailstones and these massive earthquakes that are moving mountains. And in the midst of those earthquakes, that aligns with the prophetic descriptions of the return of the Lord where he then does battle with the Antichrist and his armies, and they are quickly defeated, and then it is fully realized. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he comes as King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, after that final bold judgment, which is the, the next thing right at, in the midst of that earthquake, then the glory of, of Jesus is coming, and we'll be looking up to that in chapter 19. But there's these two chapters, again a pause, an interlude. What are the implications of God's judgment of humanity's rebellion in and on the earth? And the implications of that, both spiritually and materially, are talked about in chapter 17 and chapter 18. So we're going to look at the spiritual, the religious, if you will, implications. Because when God judges the world and humanity's rebellion in the world, one of the aspects of that is humanity's false devotions. Their, their counterfeit confidences. All the other things they have trusted in and served instead of the true and living God. And we've seen that played out through the descriptions of the end times in that particular tribulation period. We've seen how yet they would not turn. Or at times, in the midst of judgment, there were some who did call out for mercy. There are those who are saved, and the witness continues through the tribulation period up until this end. And in this end, at the end of the bold judgments, now the time for God's judgment has come. The king is coming. And we're going to see then what are the implications of that for all of the world's counterfeit confidences. Their false idolatries that they have trusted in instead of the truth of God's gospel. Okay, with that in mind, chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, John, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness." And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, names contrary to the nature and character of God. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearl, pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality." And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, a mysterious name. What could it mean? The name is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. 
We're going to talk about this, this prostitute, this harlot, this, this Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutions and, and the earth's abominations. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple of key images that for us, we tend to go another direction with them. When we read about sexual immorality in the Bible, we're often, our minds are directed toward particular conduct. Conduct that was, that was too common in the first century culture and also is, is, is common today. But immorality, unfaithfulness, Harlotry in the Old Testament is an image that is used and the abominations of it. Those are key words, especially when it's coupled with abominations and blasphemous names. Those are key words for how God addresses the idolatries, the false religions, the religions of all the peoples of the earth other than Israel and their devotion and their worship of the one true God. That's a, it's such a common Old Testament image that would immediately rise to the surface. It would be much clearer than this beast whom we've already seen identified in Revelation chapter 13 with the seven, the, the seven heads referring to seven empires that have gone through Israel's, or rather through world history. And one of those, one of those kings or kingdoms or empires is currently the sixth one, and one is yet to come at the end of time, the Antichrist empire during the tribulation. We've seen that beast before, and, and, and yet those beasts of world empires are especially unfolded in the book of Daniel. But this notion of harlotry, prostitution in idolatry, and the abominations of the earth's various religions, alternative spiritualities, counterfeit confidences, that, that, that runs all the way through the Old Testament. This is the, the idolatries that Israel was specifically warned against. The same language is used, warned against concerning the religions and the practices of the people in the land in which God is giving them. It's talked about in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. Israel is enticed and beginning with Solomon, they participate in these idolatries and abominations and unfaithfulness of the nations around them. You see that all through the book of 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. The prophets confront this idolatry that Israel dabbles in and participates in, this compromise of their true faith, and a joining in with the false religions of the nations around them. It's confronted by the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it's, it's confronted specifically in terms comparing participation in these things with the unfaithfulness and adultery of a prostitute. There's one chapter, or a series of chapters, actually, in the book of Hosea who, that, where, where the prophet does this masterfully. God sets him up. God tells Hosea, the prophet of God, to marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful to him. She is going to prostitute herself to other men. In fact, in that first chapter, she ends up bearing children. And it's unclear to us as we read the chapter whose children are these. Except the, the, um, the end of the chapter, the, chi the final child that is born, is held up in the naming ceremony where the prophet names the child, not mine, basically. 
He names a child, not my people. And he does that, God says, because these people, Israel, are no longer my people. They have abandoned me. They have departed from faithfulness to me. And they have gone on to serve other gods, the gods of the nations around them. And chapter 2 of Hosea then describes that and God calls them out for their unfaithfulness, for their breaking of the unique covenant that he had with them, which is mirrored in a marriage covenant. Then in chapter 3, there's a restoration that God tells his prophet to take again this woman and to receive him, her back to himself and to set her apart away from all of those things that she had given herself to before and to set her apart and to declare that she will be uniquely and only his. Because that is what Hosea is telling that God is going to do for Israel. This people whom he chose all the way back with Abraham to be his unique people on the earth through whom his redemption, his Savior would come, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And yet they were unfaithful to him. They were unfaithful in that calling and and chosen privilege that God had given them. And yet God will restore them to himself. God will finish what he started, even with Israel. And we're seeing that work its way through this book of the Revelation as well. But the imagery, the imagery of an unfaithful woman who gives herself through, uh, to unfaithfulness through history, that is an image of idolatry, and we catch it in her name. Her name is Babel or Babylon. Now, when you read in, in, in the book of Revelation, her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of, the source of prostitutes and the earth's abomination. And I saw the woman drunk with blood of the saints. She is in opposition to the true followers of God and of his Christ. She is, in verse 18, that woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, who is this woman Babylon. There have been a lot of suggestions through history. In fact, starting from the Reformation, the, the um, believing church became convinced early on that this was the Roman expression of the church, a false church that had, had joined in with the empire of its day and was compromised and unfaithful. Well, that was partly true, but it would not have been true at all during John's day. And it fits one of the empires, maybe. It doesn't fit the seven. And yet this harlot has ridden and has been influential over and has had the devotion of kings from all of these empires through history. And she's identified as Babel or Babylon. You see, Babel is the Hebrew word, and Babel is a, is a Hebrew wordplay we'll turn to in Genesis chapter 11. Babel is a wordplay on Balel, one letter change from B to L in English, that changes the word from the name Babel to the word confusion, because in Babel, in Babel God confused the languages. We're going to go there, Genesis chapter 11. All through the Old Testament, that place, that location, that city, and the empire that grows out of it are called, in Hebrew, Babel. But in the Greek version of the Old Testament that comes along, the Septuagint, the Hebrew word is translated over into Greek words, and it becomes Babylon, or Babylon. And that then, in our English translation, 
The, the Greek version of the Old Testament influences so that we make the connection from old to new and is translated as, as Babylon, out of the Greek version, all the way through most of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Babel and Babylon are the same Hebrew or Greek versions of the same name, the same place. And it is mostly a biblical place. It's a location in the land of Mesopotamia on a place called the the, the Plain of Shinar. This is the same place that Israel will be taken in captivity to. But to understand what's going on with this woman who is called Babylon the Great, the mother or source of all abominations, turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 picks up the story just after the flood. They've gotten off the boat. There's been some, some things now going on, some reorientation. What's, what's humanity now supposed to do? The rules have changed slightly. Now you can eat meat. And there's, there's new responsibilities given as well. There's, they're, they're still to carry out the Adam mandate to multiply and to fill the earth. And... Then in chapter 10, we have the table of nations, all of those nations that are descended from those eight that got off of the boat. And now, immediately, what do all of these clans descended from the sons of Noah, what do they all do? Now we come to Genesis chapter 11, which does also occur just before Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, we meet, anybody? Abraham. And out of Abraham comes God's people, Israel, through whom he will bless all nations in Jesus. Okay, so we're about to meet Abraham, and just before we do, we meet somebody else. The whole earth had one language in Genesis chapter 11. And as people migrated from the east, from Mount Ararat, first of all, they seemed to go over towards Persia, and then they come back around towards the east. As they migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. We'll make them hard and strong. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen or asphalt for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down and said, in short, this is not good. Look at the mess they're going to make of my purposes if I leave them to themselves. And so, verse 8, well, verse 7, Come, nothing they propose is going to be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse, Balel, their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. That's God's will. And they left off building the city, which was their will. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And what is new to John, what is amazing to John in Revelation chapter 17, when John is introduced to this woman, and he sees her, and he marvels, The end of verse 6, when I saw her, this harlot, adulterous woman, I marveled greatly. This woman who through history has ridden the world empires. 
He's like, oh, wow. It's kind of like John puts a bigger picture together here in his own mind. Because he knows, he knows what the harlotries of the abominations are. That's the same word that's used in the abomination of desolation that occurs when the Antichrist sets up a statue of himself in the midst of the tribulation, for instance. He knows what the abominations, the idolatries, the harlotries of the Old Testament, he knows what all that would be. That's the false religions of the world. And now it's all been connected together. There's one spirit of the age, perhaps I could say, that has been a common theme through all of the counterfeit confidences, all of the religions of man, all through time and through every world empire. And they are this. Come let us build. Come let us do. Come let us accomplish. Come let us work our way up toward God in the heavens. And maybe, with our recollection of the flood, come let us build our own future safety, our own future security. If a flood comes again, we'll have a high place to go to escape it. Come let us build. We've got this. And as we do, we will make a name for ourselves. We will build for ourselves and make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed among the earth and end up being merely God's servants multiplying on the earth doing His will. So we've got this. We'll do it. Come let us build so that we will make a name for ourselves. We will receive honor. We will receive glory. We will receive recognition we will make a name for ourselves rather than giving glory to the name of the one true and living God. It is the assertion that humanity can do for itself and thereby, because it does for itself, it receives the glory for what it has accomplished in asserting humanity's will over God's will, lest we be dispersed, dispersed, God says they will be dispersed. Those three pieces, they're bad enough in Genesis 11, but those are the three that are common, pulling off the mask, those are the three that are common through the world religions down through history, even to today. We will do what we need to do. We can do this. We've got this. Where biblical faith in Christ says we cannot do. It says Jesus must do for us. His death in my place because I cannot do enough. We are saved by faith in Christ, not of our own works. Lest anyone should boast make a name for ourselves, have the recognition to ourselves. You see, because he has done for us what we cannot do, there is no glory that we receive. Rather, the glory goes to God instead of to us. But in every other religion, there are men who make themselves holy and are even then looked up to others as more holier people, whether men or women. 
And they have standing as a result of that. And there is this pattern in our own religion. We will determine what's right and wrong. We'll have our own set of rules that are contrary, different to what God's purposes for humanity are. But especially, who has done the saving and who gets the glory? That's the issue. And notice that 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 mindset, that theme of human religion, it is this woman that rides all of the empires. All of the kings participate with her and they're caught up with her. And the peoples are drunk with her immoralities, which are her idolatries, which are her devotions to other things instead of the one true God who made all of humanity. The one true God, the only God that humanity owes any allegiance to. Everything else are pretenders. There are spiritualities out there, but they are false rather than true. And the mask is pulled off here for John. And I think the, the amazing thing, the marveling thing for him is to see this connection. That there is an over, overarching idolatry that runs through it all. That has been in cahoots with the empires, but is bigger than the empires. It's a funny thing as you, as you work through history, and you find that some of the same gods keep popping up over and over again. It's a new people, it's a new empire, and it's old gods. Some, when they're kind of inherited from the Greeks to the Romans, they co-opt, they change names. Um, Sometimes the same God is being worshipped in different parts with different names. But there's similarities that keep coming up all the way through. There's something bigger at play. And that's what part of, part of Satan's co-opting of humanity from the, God, from the garden forward, wasn't it this? You can be as gods. You don't have to follow God's will. You can make your own determination about what you're going to do, and you yourself can be like God. That's Satan's own lie, that he believes for himself, and then he passes along to humanity. And it continues to be practiced in one way or another, so that in each of these empires, there's part of that where the kings of the earth, the rulers of the empires along the way, they become confused about whose God actually maybe they are. And at the same time, however, the religion of the age is co-opted as a loyalty to the empire. So the religion of the age is tied into loyalty, and that's going on in the first century. All a Christian had to do in the first century, the end of the first century, to save their life in the midst of this persecution is to just offer the sacrifice to the empire, or, or rather to the emperor. Just offer a sacrifice in a temple of Rome to the cult of emperor worship in Rome, and you can believe whatever else you want to, we don't care. But just deny that Jesus is the Lord of all because first comes Caesar. And if you will just bow to Caesar first, then you can do whatever you want and we don't care. It's ultimately who is your first loyalty to. That's what's going on. And that's the pressure that is on John's churches. Two of our tests is we're understanding, what is Revelation talking about? The tests are, first of all, how do we understand these images biblically out of the Old Testament in which the New Testament is rooted? Secondly, how does this impact the church's 
of Revelation, those seven churches that we were introduced to and the pressures they are facing because those pressures will parallel the pressures we are facing as well. And they're pressed to accommodate. They're pressed to buy into the Spirit all through the ages to compromise just as Israel was tempted to compromise. Through history, people have said, well, that, that harlot, that unfaithful one, seems to be the church at different eras. She is unfaithful. And the answer is yes, but it's more than that. It can't just be the church. The church didn't reach all through history. Some would suggest, you know, actually, this seems to be Israel. That, that, that God is showing John Israel's unfaithfulness. And that's why the church has emerged, because Israel was unfaithful all through history. But this is rooted in Babel even before we got to Abraham. It started back there, and it has been through every empire, and all along the way, Israel is a good example and warning to us that God's people will be attempted to compromise with the counterfeit spiritualities and confidences of the day. That was true in the first century. Come to Rome, we've got running water, we've got public toilets and baths. You will, you will not only feel better, you will not only be wealthier, but you will smell better. Please, come to Rome. Live our way. Follow our gods and confidences. And when the enticements no longer work, for some of these holdouts, that's when the pressure starts. And one empire after another, or one even smaller government, where we're not in the midst of an age of empires, and yet smaller governments do the same things. There's a loyalty press going on. And along the way, you and I will be pressed in terms of our confidence and faithfulness to the one true God. Who do we really trust? When, Paul, when John sees her, he marveled greatly. But the angel said, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise. The same beast we've seen before. Empires of the world. And there's the, there's the Roman empire as well. And then there's a gap. And then there's this last one that emerges in the midst of the tribulation period. And is about to rise from the bottomless pit and to go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the fountain of the world will marvel to see the beast. We saw that in chapter 13. Who can war against the beast? Here is somebody that can finally bring peace and stability to the world. And if we could just have peace and stability, wouldn't that be enough? Those whose names have not been written in the book of the life and the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads of the seven mountains with the woman which is seated. There are also seven kings or kingdoms. Five have fallen. One is Rome. The other has not yet come but will. And when he does, he must come for only a little while. The final beast will have his moment. It will have seven years and he will be cut short because the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of of our God and of his Christ. The ten horns, verse 12, that you saw are ten kings who have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, a short period of time, together with the beast during the tribulation period. And these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. 
and they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. There's a word of encouragement here. As, as, as John is given this description of a, of, a, of a terrible, beastly opponent that seeks to, to, to attack and to compromise even God's beloved church, there is this reminder. But those with the Lamb are called by Him. They are chosen in Christ and they are faithful. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, they are peoples and multitude and nations and languages, all the peoples of the earth. The ten horns and the beast, the kings and the beast, those allied with him, they will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose of bringing an end to this all. And the woman that you saw is that great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. She has ruled the kings of the earth until the kings of the earth say enough. Now why is it in this last empire, why is it that the beast says enough? We're not tolerating these other religions any longer. Because we're still in that age of tolerance, aren't we? We're still in an age as long as it's not something narrow-minded and limited like Christianity where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to God the Father except through Jesus. As long as we're not that narrow-minded, most everything else is celebrated. It's good. We ought to participate in that. Let that in. It's not necessarily taken too seriously. Don't give it too much authority. And there will come a time when the beast himself, the Antichrist himself, will say, enough, he's not going to share his short moment in the spotlight with anybody else. No other religions are going to be tolerated. In fact, Daniel chapter 11 describes this, that he will no longer follow the religions of his family line even. Those that are his heritage that he emerges out of, he won't have any of that. The only allowed religion at the very end will be the worship of the beast. I think that happens from when he sets up his statue in the temple and says, I'm God, you worship me and only me. He makes the same exclusive claim that only God has the right to make. It's kind of ironic that these counterfeit confidences, these false religions and spiritualities all through the ages that have been inspired by the adversary are also ended in him because he himself is jealous of them. That's what happens at the end. So, even before Jesus comes in chapter 19 and destroys the beast and the Antichrist, even before then, Antichrist already has eliminated the other religions, the counterfeit confidences, because he himself is jealous of them. It's kind of ironic how he does that and God's leading in doing so. God will bring an end to this world religion and ultimately the battle will boil back down to what it was since Genesis chapter 3. The lie of the serpent against the truth of God and life with him. That's at the end what it will boil back down to. It won't be a whole smorgasbord of alternatives any longer.
Now, what does that have to do with us? This great city, the woman that you saw, this great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth and continues to have influence, continues to exert pressure in the culture even of our day as well as in John's day. What does this have to do with us? Beware of whatever expression of faith the world culture currently relies on instead of faith in the one true God. That's the pressure in John's day. That the world culture of his day is pressing upon the church another culture in w- or another confidence in which they trust that is contrary to their faith in the one true God and his son Jesus. And the church through, from then till now continues to feel that same pressure. You'll know it by the same keys that were evident in Genesis chapter 11. The, key, the, the, the self-effort, come let us build, which is in contrast to what God has done for us in Jesus. This... this um, um, let us make a name for ourselves, the exaltation of man or the exaltation of any other except God alone and the ignoring of God's will and replacing that with other rules, other requirements. There's current expressions of this within our culture today. We're going to talk about that for a minute. But, but in the midst of these counterfeits, in the midst of counterfeit confidence, we need to keep our faith. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. Because they overcame, chapter 12, verse 11, a key verse in the book, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony concerning Him and what God has done that gives God glory, And they love not their own lives even unto death. They would yield their will to God even if it cost them. We need to know the truth. I received an email this week that that shared the results of a survey, uh, a biannual and every other year survey that that, um, a couple of different ministries do concerning the state of theology in the evangelical church. And this was interesting. The results of it actually were put across as, this is very disturbing, this is discouraging. How could it have come to this? That the evangelical, those those evangelical Christians who say we believe the Bible, our faith is in God's Son, Jesus, We, we, we believe what God has said in His Word, that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And yet, here's how they answered the survey. 56 believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, Hinduism, etc. Nearly half believe that God learns and adapts to different circumstances. God is still trying to make his way and figure things out just like we are. 70% strongly believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm afraid to. That Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. It's close, but Jesus is not created. He created all things, and apart from him is not anything created that was created. 
70% agreed to that statement, which actually expresses a, a heresy long rejected by the church from the earliest centuries. 38% see Jesus as a great teacher, but not God. 38%, not of the population, but of evangelicals in churches like ours. 60% say the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. I call that Star Wars theology. But it's intriguing how the culture and its media influences how we think, and which influences how we think about ourselves. It influences how we think about God. 27% think the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is expressly forbidden in God's Word. I would say to you that the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. He doesn't contradict himself. If I think he does, I'm misunderstanding either the Word or the Spirit. 94% agree that the Bible has the authority to tell us what we must do. Good. Except when the Spirit contradicts it, apparently. 57% believe everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 65% believe that we are born completely innocent. Thirty-seven percent agree that religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. There is truth. In a pluralistic world, we need to know God's truth. Now, one of the things I was encouraged about, encouraged about that statement is what we are doing in terms of being committed to expositional ministry, teaching God's Word, what we are doing in terms of small groups and discipleship groups where we strengthen and encourage one another around God's Word, what we are doing in BP Academy intentionally seeking to equip the saints of the church for the work of ministry, to know what we believe and why we believe it. We are we are meeting a real need within the church today. What we are doing, according to this survey, is exactly what the church today, in, the, in this moment, in this culture, needs. And we need to dig in all the more. We need to press on with what God has said before us. Because it is not only the world around us that needs Jesus, but his church needs to be strengthened against the, the pressure to compromise that is great and and as it tempted Israel all through history, we could judge Israel and say, well, what is wrong with you people? Why do you keep doing that? But we can't do that if we're not willing to look in the mirror and say, what is wrong with you people? Bob, why do you keep doing that? You see, we are as subject, and we need to arm ourselves in God's truth. That's the warning that I think is here for us. This power in the age is very real and very present and if we're going to resist and be faithful in the midst of a compromised humanity so that we can be light for them, and we'll have a hope that they can recognize as different, we're going to need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We're going to need to know, we're going to focus on the differences, the things that are uniquely about us in the faith that God has given us. How we keep our faith in the sense that we are going to focus not on what will we do, come let us build, but we are going to focus on what he has done. 
Jesus died for us. We are then going to, going to, we're going to focus on that not only as the means of salvation, how one gets right with God, but that's the center of how I live. In a, few, in a few minutes, we're going to pass the communion elements around as a church. We're taking baby steps back. We're going to, again, pass these trays. They're still the prepackaged elements that we were using before. But now, it's, now we're going to pass the trays. And that's important because it's not just symbolism. The symbolism has a meaning that I receive the gospel from somebody else. And then when I receive the gospel from somebody else, I also pass it on to somebody else. And that's not just evangelism, though it is that. But I need to be reminded of the gospel by you. And when I've been reminded of the gospel, I need to remind someone else of the gospel. Because the gospel of what God has done for us in Jesus and that we are secure in him, and that our identity is in him, not the false promises around us, that that strengthens us to remain faithful in the midst of this age. So that our life and the living, the things that we choose to do, are lived out as a response of worship that seeks to glorify God rather than earning credit that would bring glory to me. It's when I understand the gospel of God is done for me, then I can live in response of worship, bringing him glory by yielding my will to his will. So you see how those same three cores that we found in Genesis chapter 11, they then reach into our lives today as the antidote. It is done, not do. It is glorify him, not me. It is yielding my will to his will, even when I don't fully understand it. How have you been tempted to see your faith in Jesus as one option in the world today, among others? That this is right for you, but who are you to say that it's right for somebody else? That's the pressure that's put in on us. It's very subtle. But I expect there's some way that you have been pressured there. Where have you been tempted to come build for yourself? To build for yourself approval? To build for yourself security for an unknown future? To build for yourself acceptance that God would be pleased with you if only you do? Instead of trusting what God has done for you in Jesus. Because these pressures are upon us. And if the church is going to be God's faithful ones in a continuing age of idolatry, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. And so as I invite the worship team to come forward, we're going to invite those who are serving to come forward, we're going to receive these elements together. If you came in and you didn't see any of the gluten-free available on the back table, I think some more of those were put out. And we're going to pass these elements. We're going to have just some instrumental music to remind us to just be able to reflect. And as we pass these elements, they remind us of the body of Jesus given for us in his death in my place. The blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. As we pass these from one to another, it's to remind ourselves to remind the one next to you that, yes, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Take some time in the midst of the passing of these elements. Take some time to, to bow your head, to give thanks if Jesus is your Savior, 
Maybe to confess that there's some other confidence that has recently gotten in the way. Or maybe if you're here among us this morning and you would say, you know, this is the first time that I get it. I see the difference. It's not about what I do to earn God's approval. But it's about what God did for me in Jesus. Him dying in my place. That that's how I am accepted and forgiven by God. If that is your faith, that Jesus died for you in your place this morning, then this table becomes your table. As we remember together him. So we will, we will serve one another. I'll even then serve those who are serving so that as we serve one another, we're reminded of sharing the gospel with one another.